God, we, we come to you this morning with hearts that, again, just ask to be filled up with the full measure of your Spirit. God, if there are tattered and torn pieces, we ask to be mended. God, we pray for your peace to be very present here, that we can tune our ears to hear truth, that there will be no no lie in our hearts and minds that would keep us from hearing, again, the story of Christmas and believing it with the whole heart. I pray that all of us here today will just know how incredible your love is. Not just for those even who who come with hearts of faith, but even if there's any who come this morning with questions or skepticism or doubt, God, you have a heart of love, you are generous in grace. God, we want to hear your voice this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. We're just going to go to verse 6, and this is what it says. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, In Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Amen. You may be seated. So to catch us up to where we are, uh, we're taking three Sundays to look at the responses to the birth of Jesus. Last week we looked at Herod, who uh, just hated Jesus when Jesus killed. Uh, This week we're going to look at the chief priests, who didn't care about Jesus. You can kind of sense this in their immediate response. Uh, Where is the Messiah going to be born? They knew. They answered immediately, but there is this silence there is no response where the Magi from a long ways away came and they said, hey, we want to we wanna worship. <laughs> and he didn't even say Messiah. The Magi said, we want to worship the king of the Jews, but they knew who he was talking about. And so he said, where's the Messiah going to be? And the, the chief priest knew the answer. But somewhere along the way, they had just stopped caring. And then next week we're going to look at the Magi. Uh, what I want to what I want to start with in looking at the chief priests is that it's very easy to not like them, and oftentimes when we do not like somebody, we don't consider where they've come from, and and this is evident in a Christmas Carol right, by Charles Dickens. If you know Scrooge, how many of you guys have watched them up at Christmas Carol? It's inspirational. <laughs> And it's somewhat accurate, other than it being done by puppets. So Scrooge is this character in The Christmas Carol that people just don't like. Uh, At this one point, 
his, his nephew at the very beginning, his nephew comes in and he says, Uncle Scrooge, I love Christmas. Isn't Christmas the most wonderful time of the year? And then what does Scrooge say? Bah humbug. <laughs> bah humbug. Right? It just means he has this disdain for Christmas. He just hates it. And, and at first, if we saw Scrooge, we would just think, well, this guy was just dropped sometime during his birth, right? Like, like he came out and just something happened to him and, and everything's been bad since then. But, but we actually get to look into Scrooge's life because as Scrooge goes home for the night and after you know, causing a havoc of many people's lives during the day, he goes home and then he is visited by several spirits, right? The spirit of Ghost of Christmas passed present and future. The ghost of Christmas past takes him first to see where, where he was raised or educated, right? And so he's this very studious boy that doesn't really care about anything and just wants to study, like most little boys. And, and then they take him to a Christmas party where he first started working. And, and everyone's partying, the, the company's paid for the party, and, and at first he's upset because, because why? Because the money's being spent in a party, and it can be spent for more thrifty means. And then what you get brought to is Scrooge sitting with the woman that he loves. And, and what happens is, through this brief exchange of them, you see that, that she is telling him why the relationship won't work. And and at first, Scrooge doesn't get it. And, and this is what she says. She says, Scrooge, you've changed. And those, those are hard words to hear for anybody. And, and when we hear those words, usually what that means is someone trying to communicate to us that you don't realize. You, at some point, you've stopped seeing what's happened to your life. And so, so someone comes in who loves you and cares for you, and they say, Hey, I just want to let you know you've you have something's happened. And and what has happened to him is that she says, You have been given into the idol of gain. You just want more and more and more, and nothing will satisfy you. When we first fell in love, we were both poor and and all we needed was was one another. But but at some point along the way, you couldn't have enough. And you pursued more and more and more. And she said, and, and she says, now I won't even be enough. She goes, and this is, she says, if I, if I walked away from you right now, you wouldn't even pursue me. Because all you want is to gain more and more and more wealth. And, and at that point, Scrooge says, he says, Ghost Christmas past, take me from here. I can't bear this anymore. I can't bear to be remembered of this event. Because... What she had predicted came true. Scrooge could never have enough, and, and his heart became colder and colder and colder uh, to become the man that, that we experience at the beginning of the story of A Christmas Carol. You've changed. And ultimately, that's what we find when we, we see the chief priest. The chief priest and the teachers of the law um, didn't start out as bad apples, right? As far as the idea of a chief priest. The first time we get any form of priest, actually, let me, and let me, let me um, first start by letting you know we're going to approach history. Okay? And why I want to warn you is because a lot of times when you start talking about factual history, people are like, boring. 
But then, this is what happens. When you doubt in your faith, what you go is like, you know, I just don't think it's true. It's just all feelings. But when, when we preach to you like history, you're like, can we just go back to feelings? So, so what I'm going to do is we're going to go and we're going to touch on some history so you guys realize that this is based in that. Right? So like when we start the story, it's like Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That was a place in history. King Herod, that was a person in history. Okay? Uh, so where the high priests come from is they come from a guy named Aaron. Right? Aaron was the brother of Moses. Yeah, we know Moses. And, and oftentimes, maybe we think Moses was a high priest. Moses wasn't a high priest. He was, just, he was a leader of the community. Um, and, and so as Moses was called, he was a very timid man. And, and while he kind of wrestled with God, if he was going to take the call to go back and help free Israel, and he was like wrestling through this with guys like, God, I don't talk very well, I don't look very well, I don't smell very well. And, and God said, you know what? Aaron's already halfway here. And, and so God had like prepared this so they could walk together. So as, as Moses led the people, Aaron could lead the people in worship of God. As time progressed, and we're not going to cover all of history, don't worry. As time progressed, they built a temple. Uh, David's son Solomon built the temple. And in that first temple, over about a, a span of about 300 years, um, they had 18 different high priests. And a high priest would, would come in, and then when they die, another high priest would come. At the year 587, Babylon came and crushed, the, they just took down the temple, okay? Later, if you've read the Old Testament, you have a book like Ezra or Nehemiah, where people come back because they've been taken away. Israel comes back and they build a second temple. When they build the second, are you guys tracking with me? Okay, good. And when they build the second temple, there's another about 300 or so years um, that you have where in that time frame, you have hundreds of high priests. Because it's moved from there being a high priest to it being sort of a, a lucrative political position. Does that make sense? And so, so they didn't have just a high priest who would live and then die and be replaced but it became this position that a lot of people wanted because there was money involved with it. Okay? And so with that, uh, you would have a, like a group of people who were formerly high priests that they would become chief priests. And so they gathered together, like we see here, and they were leaders of the community. And so that's where the chief priests came from. It came from people who were supposed to be leaders of worship in the community. People who, when when they needed to discern what was right and wrong, what God's will was, what should we do, that people could go to them, that the community could go to them and say, hey, can you help us discern this? What does God want our nation to do at this point, at this juncture? Um, but that role had been changed a lot. And what we see now is after the Romans came in, um, all they were was basically puppets of the government. So Herod could say, hey, uh, come here, and they all come, right? Because they were more interested in position and power than they were in actually leading the nation in righteousness. So those, those were the chief priests. Um, a way that we are often familiar with the chief priests is, um, is as we see them reflected in the Gospels, which... Um, 
which I want to share with you guys, but before I share that, I want to share two really positive things. Um, because oftentimes um, we forget the Jewishness of our faith. Um, and it's important not to. Because when we forget that, we just kind of write off the Old Testament. And that's, that's where we come from. Um, at this one point, Paul, who um, was raised to be a religious leader, um, he wrote a lot of the New Testament. He says, what advantage is there to being a Jew? He says, there is advantages in every way. And this is what he writes in Romans. He says, theirs is the adoption of sons, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all forever to be praised. Amen. Right? So, so what advantage is there? Man, advantages in every way. They have a rich, rich, beautiful history. And, and when Herod could ask them, who, who is the Messiah and where is the Messiah to be born? They could answer immediately. Right? So, so at some point, knowledge-wise, intellectually, they got it, and they still got it. So they could reference back to Isaiah. Right? Isaiah, and I'll just read this for you, Isaiah 9, um, where they reference is in Micah. But in the book of Isaiah, there's this incredible, uh, and we've actually gone through it in our Advent readings, this promise of what the Messiah would be. And this is what it says, and I'll read this for you even though we've gone through it. It says, For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justiceness, with just, there's no such word as justiceness. With justice and righteousness from that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So, when he says, where is the Messiah to be born? They, they knew this, but they didn't care anymore. They didn't believe in this anymore. So, when their minds were like tracking through the digital databases, their, their electrons were firing and they were like, oh, he will be a wonderful counselor. Almighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. And they could just say that and be like, there you go. <laughs> yeah, there was no, those words no longer had any hope for them. And so the way they act out in their response to Jesus first is silence and then opposition because throughout the course of his life, all they did was oppose him. And this one point, Jesus, in the book of Luke, he tells a parable. And, and at the end of the parable, it says of the chief priests and teachers of the law that they knew that he was speaking to them. And this is how the parable goes. He says, Jesus, a man planted a vineyard and rented it out to some farmers. And then he went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants, so they would give him some fruit from the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent a third, but they also 
wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what, what shall I do? Who will I send? Perhaps they will, send, they will respect my son whom I love. But when the tenants saw the son, they talked the matter over and they said, this is the heir, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When the people heard this, they said, may this never be. And Jesus said, looking directly at them, that then, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And it says this in verse 19, the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked away, looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. That they were the tenants who were entrusted with the vineyard. And as, as people came speaking truth and saying, hey, will, will you worship? Will you, will you give glory and honor where it is due? And they would just kick him out. Kick him out. And so God says, well, I'm going to, I'm going to send my son whom I love to them and perhaps they will respect him. And this is Jesus, the son who God loved, sent to them and they would kill him. It was the chief priest who paid Judas 30 talents of silver. It was the chief priest who brought him before Pilate. It was the chief priest while he was getting beaten who mocked him. So what happens how do we understand this? For people who have such a beautiful, rich history, um, who, could, who could identify through information who the Messiah would be, but when the Messiah walks in front of them, they just don't care anymore. So, there's three things in this that I want to look at. Um, in the book of Matthew. Um, and in looking at these, what I want us to do is really, um, I think, hear ourselves um, a good warning um, that when Jesus walks by, we don't miss out on him like they did. So the first is this. The first is that they were silent, but God still speaks. They were silent, but God still speaks. So they could repeat really quickly what the Old Testament had said about Jesus, but they were silent after that. They didn't care. They didn't, they didn't want to worship him. And, and this is pretty profound in comparison to the response of other people. Um, the song we sang earlier, uh, Angels We Have Heard on High, the Latin you sang glory to God in the highest. Um, that's what the angels sang. So, so where the chief priests were silent, other people went crazy. Right? You have angels who are like bursting out of the atmosphere going, glory to God in the highest. Right? You have Mary, who receives this incredible news that she will bear the Son of God, which is kind of scary news at the same time, because who's going to believe her? And, and yet, she erupts in this song. Like she's known by, it's called the Magnificat, right? She's known by this song where she's exalting who God is and what he has done for her. You have a guy like Zechariah who also doesn't get it immediately, but when he does, he just starts worshiping God. You have a guy like Simeon, also in the book of Luke, who, who when he sees the Christ child, when he sees Jesus, 
he, he's just like, take me home. Like, I'm ready to go because I've, I've seen Jesus. And yet, yet when the chief priests receive news that the Messiah is here, all they do is give coordinates for them to geocache Jesus, right? That's like, they're okay, Bethlehem, here we go. <laughs> but they didn't care. What would, what would cause someone to be silent? I think there's a couple things. Um, one is this. I think that they have lost their passion because waiting was too much for them. There's this long period of time, which is called the intertestamental period, um, where there was incredible um, persecution towards the Jewish people. Um, as you know, the Babylonians swept in and took them down. You have the Persians do the same thing. Eventually you have the Romans do it. Um, in the Apocrypha, it, it does actually have some history about this intertestamental period. And there's this, this incredible story about a mother and seven sons in the book of Second Maccabees. If you're not familiar with it, it's in the Apocrypha. Um, but in this, it, they're brought before one of these foreign kings and, and asked to denounce the God represented in the Torah. And, and the mother says, I've not raised my sons to do that. And so one by one, each of these seven sons is brought up and each one of them is killed. And it records this, one after another after another. And so... And so I th- I th- my, my guess is that after a long time, what led to their silence is, is maybe just feeling like they couldn't talk anymore, right? Maybe they didn't feel like they knew what they were talking about anymore. And that's kind of hard stuff to even to share on a Sunday morning, right? When we talk about God and believing in him. But I, I know there's a, a time in people's faith where they stop and they're like, okay, I, Okay, I just said God, but I don't even know what I mean by that anymore. And, and so I, I think you have these, these people who have gone through a whole lot, and they have held on to information. But that information no longer has any meaning for them. You get the sense of this in the book of Revelation, the very last book in the Bible, where, where the, the Christian church is going through a time very similar to the intertestamental period when they are getting persecuted, right? They're getting dragged out and killed for their faith. And, and there's this really... Uh, this is part of the scripture reading this week if you are in the last three weeks of going through the whole Bible, which we started in January. In chapter 2, this is what it says. It says, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you can't tolerate wicked men. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. And I think that's very similar to this place where the Jews were. You've, you've persevered in so many ways. And, and yet, this is what verse 4 says, and yet this I hold against you. You have forsaken your first love. And so I think it's very similar to this where, 
where they've held on to this body of information, they can repeat it. And for many of you, even information that you have about Jesus, you got, you got a lot, right? You could rattle off some verses if somebody asked you. But it's become so much information that, that this is very sobering news here, where God's like, man, you perse- you made it through, and yet somewhere along the way, you stopped loving me. And that, that's, a, that's a serious charge. Like, that's a scary charge, because then, then what happens when, when something beautiful happens? Maybe, maybe someone next to you it starts singing like Mary. God, even though I am poor, you are great. And they, they're, just, they're just so excited because they see God in his goodness, and there's no stirring in your heart at all. You come on a Sunday morning and, and you read the words and you're like, those are really nice, those are beautiful, but I don't, like, I don't relate with that anymore. And there's just silence. I don't know how to sing anymore. And that's, that's where they are. Right? I, I, I know that. I just don't know how to say it anymore. And that, that is the place that they are at here. And so, when God speaks... And they see his words that have endured throughout time because his words haven't changed. Even though their hearts have been changing, his words haven't changed. They've changed so much that when the word becomes flesh and dwells among them, they don't see it. They don't hear it. They don't understand it. And this is a very, very scary place to be. The second thing is this. They they feel defeated. And you can see this because there's, there's injustice going on. And yet, they feel powerless to act against the injustice. They, they see something going on and, and they're like, that's someone else's battle. That's not my battle. But where they are defeated, as you see here in, in the prophecy from the book of Micah, it says that God will raise up a ruler, for out of you will come a ruler. So the beautiful thing is about this is, is that while they feel defeated, God is raising up a ruler. So God is not waiting for them to mobilize and for them to act, but God himself is acting. So it's hard to see when someone gets defeated, right? When you have a, a friend in your life, or maybe you at some point in your life, and you, for some reason, you or them, just don't feel the motivation to act in righteousness anymore. Or, or even to fellowship with people who love Jesus anymore, right? And there's just that sense of defeat. We know, because we've seen... People triumph over defeat even when it seems impossible. You'll have to forgive me, but the, the example that came to mind first was Braveheart, which uh, kind of should be, right? You can take away our lives, but you can't take away our freedom. Okay, so this is this not a novel concept, because in the book of Daniel, which is probably a better reverence than Braveheart, you have these three guys who are brought in front of 
them and a bunch of other people are brought in front of a king, and the king says, unless you worship me, unless you worship this statue that I've made, I'm going to kill you. And the music starts. So the music starts, everyone bows down, they don't bow down. And so the king's like, well, I'm going to kill you. And in a very brave heart fashion, this is what they say. They say, O king, we need not defend ourselves before you in this matter. If you throw us into a blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from your hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your God or worship your image of gold. So, the original Braveheart. Right? Like you can take our lives, right? So there's this, this, this sense, even though there is powers that are, are maybe seem like they have a lot more power than you do, there is this sense of we are not defeated. We have hope, but, but they have lost all hope. They have thrown in the towel. But at that very moment, God is raising up a ruler in their midst. And, and the, the hope, we're going to talk a little more about the hopeful side of this, but, but the hope is this, that God is not waiting for them to mobilize. Not, God's not waiting for them to get it. But God goes, from your midst, I'm going to be raising up a ruler. And that's the story. That's the story of salvation. That's the story of reconciliation. The story of Christmas is that God is doing something that we couldn't even ask for. The third is this. When they lost their way, that God continued to lead. God continued to lead them. And you get this sense at the very end when it says, He will be a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. So even while they lost their way, God continued to lead them. So there's these three things, right? There is profound silence. They don't know how to worship anymore. Even, even if the Messiah was in front of them, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be happy. They were people who were defeated. That, that there wasn't even the sense anymore of we can do this. And the last was this, that they were completely lost. They didn't know what was up and what was down. But in each of these things, in their silence, God was still speaking. When they felt defeated, God was still ruling and he was raising up a ruler, Jesus, to lead them. Even though they felt lost, God was still leading them. And so the question is, how do we become aware of this? I think, first, just to address the lostness, um, I think the lostness comes from a couple of ways. Um, I think lostness comes either because at some point along the way, we took our own road and didn't really look back. And this is what happens. You, we take our own turn, and then, and then we go, even if it's just five steps in that direction, and then what happens? Even though, even though you took that road... When you find yourself lost and alone, this is what happens. You go, God, why are you not here? And, and that's, that's what they did. Right? They, they took their own road. And then all of a sudden, they're like, God, this is totally your fault. But God is still speaking. God is still raising up a ruler in their midst. And God is still leading them, welcoming them to come back. The other, so either take your own road, or this is the other thing, is, is at some point we follow 
a lie, right? And, and by follow, it's not just something that we're deciding on our own, but, but there are people influencing us and encouraging us to do what's wrong. So we, we feel lost eventually, and we're in good company when we're lost. So God's lead. How do, how do we, as people, appreciate the story of Christmas, not just for ourselves, but, but for, um, for others, too, who might be in these places of lostness, of feeling like they just don't have a song anymore, um, of feeling very defeated. Well, this is the story of Christmas. Um, this last week, uh, I had finals, and in one of my classes, yeah, Amy gave the fist bump. Um, in one of my classes, it's a, a class on social holiness, which is how do how do we as a church um, really um, be the presence of God in the world? And and my two professors brought a really interesting view. Um, one of them was in Ferguson a week ago. Um, they were in Ferguson when the um, the case from New York was decided by the grand jury. The man who was um, strangled um, would not be um, prosecuted for that. And and she she shared from this this idea of. Um, kind of a feeling of, of hopelessness and despair that was in this room as they gathered and they were talking about issues of reconciliation and how God speaks into our communities still. And, and as they were in one of these gatherings, the, the grand jury decision in New York happened and, and someone received this, a young man received this on his phone as a text and just started wailing. Started wailing. And, and among the things he said, and this just profoundly stuck out to me, he says, why would I want to have children? He was an African-American man. Why would I want to have children to be raised in this kind of a world? And, and obviously it was just very profound for him. Um, just the, the feeling and emotions, the feeling of lostness, silence, defeat. And she, she spoke from this, this place of, of her as a, a theology professor, um, a bunch of pastors were gathered. What do we say? And she says, and at that moment, we did not know what to say. We didn't know what to, how to pray for him, how to comfort him. Um, she said, because they were so dumbfounded, someone started singing this little lot of mine, and then just stopped, because it was like the totally inappropriate song to sing. And then she said, and then someone started singing the song, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? And all of a the sudden, they, in that moment, this holy moment, they realized that, that God identifies with our suffering in ways that we couldn't even ask him to. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? And all of a sudden, they realized it wasn't, it wasn't a God who was distant and far away, but a God who was there, present, suffering alongside them. Right? That there was hope that there wasn't the silence of God, but that there was the spoken word of God there among them. Very powerfully, too, my other professor, he, uh, he was asked to join um, a group uh, who walked through the SPU campus um, in solidarity with, with those who feel very alone right now because of some of the decisions being made in our nation. 
And, and as that was happening, he said, a student came up and he said, he said this. He, says, he said, why this? Why now? This is Christmas. Right? Why would you screw up everyone's holiday to go marching in protest? Right? Why would you do that? Well, and this is, this is the reality, okay? We who are filled with information are, are dangerously close to being where the chief priests are if our hearts aren't moved to action on behalf of those who are suffering. If, if we could be like that person who's like, you're screwing up Christmas, when, when the whole point of Christmas is Jesus coming to break the silence, to bring victory to those who feel defeated, right? For those who are lost to show that there is leadership and that leadership is coming from God. That's, that is Christmas. Why, why this? Why now it's Christmas? Because it's Christmas. Amen? Yes. Yeah, please. So... So, and this is profound for us. We, we have to realize the story of Christmas is, is bringing the message of, of God visiting a world that feels so alone. And, and we have to, man, man, may God jumpstart our hearts again to realize that we are not alone and that that is the story of Christmas. That we are not alone. And not just for those who get it. Not just for the Marys. Not just for the Zechariahs. And we, we realize it's not just for them because when the chief priests have mocked him and they've done their worst to Jesus and he's on the cross, his words, the words of God, the, the son whom was loved and was sent and killed said this. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive the chief priests. They don't know what they're doing anymore. Because, because they just feel silenced. Because they just feel defeated. Because they just feel alone. They don't feel led anymore. Father, forgive. I've come for them too. Not just for Mary. Or Zechariah. Or the other people who, who get it. And so the story of Christmas is for all those who, for one way or another, feel lost and alone and isolated. And, and that God is silent. And He is not silent. And so, so how do we respond to this as a church? Um, a couple ways. The, the first is this. What does it mean for us to rekindle our love for God? A God who so loved us that he sent his son. Right? To be people that when we, we sing the songs and when someone speaks to us of Jesus, our hearts sing again. What does it look like to rekindle the love? What does it look like to be people who walk in the authority of Jesus because he came to seek and save those who are lost, those who feel defeated. And so that, that we realize that he is offering adoption as sons and daughters, and so that we can feel no longer defeated, but walk in his authority. Instead of feeling lost, we are found. What does this mean? And, and this is it. Essentially, this is what I want to offer you. I, I pray for us as a church that this Christmas, we can move all the information we have into action. All the information we have. You know so much about Jesus. If you're holding a Bible in your hand, you know way more 
than even the angels did when they sang. Honestly, they were just kind of, they were just, they were getting like marching orders. Like, Jesus is going to earth. Yes, can we sing? (laughs) Yeah, go for it. Right? You knew more than Mary, who just got word that she was going to bear the Son of God. Right? You have more than Zechariah, who was still trying to figure out what role his son would play in the whole thing. Right? See, you, you have the spoken word, and you've also got to see it fulfilled. So, let's move that information into action. What does that mean? And it will, it will, look, it will look slightly different for us. I encourage action for you guys to be helping one another remember and rekindle your love for God. It isn't just a feeling, it's a historical fact that you can share and enjoy. That those who are lost, you sit with, helping them know that they're not alone. Because Christmas can be a terribly lonely time for some people. What does it look like for us to do this together? And maybe, maybe you don't know, like they didn't know how to, how to sit with that young man in Ferguson. Maybe you just need to, to sit with that person who feels alone and let them know that, that he is not distant. Today, there's another way, if you would like to join us in action, that we will be taking. Um, a couple of the pastors here will be joining. We've been asked by the Bremerton African American Ministers Association to join them in walking today in solidarity, just with um, the community who is hurting and feeling like they have been forgotten at times. Um, we're going to be meeting at Ebenezer AME Church, which is down on Park Avenue at 3 o'clock. Um, at 2.40, I'm going to be here and walk down if anyone would like to join us. Um, and, and for a lot of us, right, moving information to action, this is incredibly uncomfortable. Because some of you don't even know what you feel about this topic yet. Um, and maybe you're uncomfortable because you're like, are we getting into political issues as a church? No, the truth is what we're doing is for those who feel alone, they feel like maybe the nation has been silent, um, that we want to walk with them and and remind them we are with them, they are not alone, that God loves them. Um, So I encourage you guys, if you'd like to come and join us to walk in solidarity with our our African-American brothers and sisters, um, who will be gathering. So 2.40 here, if you'd like to join us for that. Guys, what are we going to do to move from information to action? Right? It isn't going like this, hmm, I'm going to think about that a little longer. I'm going to journal. <laughs> and I'm going to read my journal in a year and see if I actually did what I, I journaled. It's not that. You notice what you love. If you, if you are crazy about somebody and they walk in the room, you notice them, right? Jesus walked in to the world and people didn't notice. So what are we going to do to move information to action? That when, when Jesus visits, we notice him. I'm, I'm going to leave part of that to your guys' discovery, but I encourage you guys, as you read the stories, you sing the songs, don't let it be information anymore. Realize that Jesus did invade this earth. God in flesh. He shook things up and he wants to shake you up too. So pray with me and we'll sing together. God, do compel us again to, to sing 
because you came to remind our friends and kids and whoever what Christmas does mean, that it means that you aren't distant, you aren't silent, that you love tremendously. Help us love those around us. We praise in Jesus' name, amen.